Let us pray. Father, we just thank you. Uh, thank you for this day and for the rain and how you use it to just restore all things, Lord. We just pray um, that as we sit here in your presence today, God, that you can help us just to quiet any distractions that are on our hearts, God. Just whatever that might be, that we give it to you, God, because you're good, Lord. We just thank you for uh, the hope and the promise that we have in you, Lord, that we're going to get to spend an eternity with you, not because you need us, Lord, but because you love us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, obviously, we have a big day coming up, and um, I don't mean the Super Bowl, because uh, I don't actually really like the NFL all that much, um, and I don't really know that the commercials have been all that good ever since they got rid of the frogs and the beer commercial. So that being said, it is Valentine's Day coming up. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that we did um, last year that uh, was kind of nice and, and something that when I was talking with Char, we wanted to do again with the home church is, um, you know, go through the different types of love, right? And just talk in general about what these are and then how these different types of love apply to our own lives. Um, and when we talk about the different types of love, it's something where, you know, many of you have probably heard many sermons in the past or, or messages or Bible stories or whatever about uh, the, the four different types of love. So if you are uh, not uh, oriented or acclimated to uh, how the New Testament is written, basically the New Testament is written in Greek, right? So this was the anybody who was anybody at the time of the writing of the New Testament uh, wrote Greek, um, which is, you know, it's kind of... Interesting if you stop and think about it, because, you know, we always think about like, hey, in the Bible, you know, the other forces you have is like Rome, and you think Latin, but again, uh, sophisticated people wrote in Greek, so everybody, everybody understood Greek. Uh, a lot of it was actually spoken in like uh, Aramaic, right? So you actually have this interesting cocktail of languages that go into the Bible, and it's one of the reasons why... As you do Bible study, and I know something I get real big on is you have to really be paying attention to what the Bible is saying anytime that you find a little verse you like. I always talk about these coffee mug verses that people really, really like, and we'll, we'll, a couple of them will be on our sermon here today. Uh, but, you know, these little verses that we like to memorize, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? We love these little phrases, um, but sometimes they kind of lose their, their punch because we're reading them in, you know, kind of the King's English, right? You know, and so because of that, what ends up happening is sometimes we lose some of the context and all that. And one example of where you can find this is when the Bible talks about love. Because there's actually several stories and several verses in which we read the word love in our Bible, and then we don't really understand the context with which those verses or those, those stories or those lessons are being taught because we don't know which word they're talking about. Because in Greek, they had four different words for love, right? So we're going to talk about all of them. So especially now that the kitties aren't in here, we're starting out with uh, the first one, which is called eros. And uh, if, if you don't know what eros is, you can think about any English words that sound like they, they start with like arrow and like got a pretty good idea, right? So this is kind of your, uh, what, what I said in the home church video, is kind of your Pepe Le Pew type of love. You know, this is your, your burning passion, you know, type of thing. 
Um, and it's interesting because, you know, we end up with verses in the Bible that are sometimes very curious when you read them um, until you understand that it's talking about, you know, like this type of love. Because we see things in the Bible that talk about love is good and, you know, it's good for, uh, it's not good for a man to be alone, you know. Uh, so a man and a woman being together is a good thing and all that. So we read all these things in the Bible, but then we see these curious things. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 9. So you end up seeing this. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. So it's interesting that you have Paul in 1 Corinthians telling people who aren't married and telling people who are widows, like, it's better that you, that you don't stay married. It's better that I, I don't get married. Um, but then he talks about the idea of self-control. And so what he's getting into right here is he's, he's getting into a lot of, uh, you know, words that kind of relate to this Eros concept, you know, this idea of something that is not um, really well controlled, something that, that doesn't really have a great sense of personal discipline to it. The analog best analogy I could possibly give you is uh, this, also ironically kind of coming from, from a lot of the Greek stuff. So when you think about um, Greek like gods or anything, as I know all of you do on a daily basis, like I do, um, then, you know, typically we think of, like, the god of war, and you think of, like, well, well, who? Who do you think of when you think of, like, god of war? Ares, right, or Mars, or whatever. You think of, like, the big bad guy, right? Um, but, you know, he's really not, like, the god, he's not, like, the deity for war. Like, he's, he, 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 he kind of is, but he kind of isn't. The actual deity for war is um, Athena, but Athena is like more like like warfare, like strategic warfare, like actually plotting things out and sending your troops in and all that kind of stuff. Ares or Mars, you know, in Latin, was the god of more like this uncontrolled, unbridled, more like the chaos of war, you know. So like he was actually viewed as a negative feature in warfare. You, you didn't want to be associated with Ares or anything because it wasn't controlled. And because of that, there wasn't any real purpose to it and there wasn't any real meaning to it. Well, in the same way, you can look at this type of love in the same sense that Eros in and of itself is a thing. But when that's the only thing that's there, it's kind of meaningless. And you can see this in relationships because, you know, when you have these romantic relationships and the only thing that's there is kind of this, you know, burning passion and that's it. There's no like deeper thing. There's no selflessness. There's no understanding. Uh, there's no kind of uh, almost like familiar type of love where I love you because you're also a part of my family and you're a part of me. When you lack that and the only thing you have is this kind of Eros love, then quickly things start falling apart because you don't actually share things that are selfless. So as soon as things get hard, you bolt and you don't want anything to do with it. So I would contrast this with another example of where we see um, Paul talking about relationships between a man and a woman and where we see a very different type of love used in this context. Because that eros is very different than what we see in something that is often used and a bunch of dumb jokes is frequently made. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 31, and then we're going to skip a verse and go to 33. So in Ephesians 5, 22, starting there, we see this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Hold your jokes until the end. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. 
He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Verse 33, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because, yeah, a lot of people like to sit here and talk about the whole, like, wives submit to your husbands. And I think, honestly, even pastors sometimes get sucked into it because, especially with uh, the, the fact that as a society in general, I mean, it seems like we're, we're, at least historically speaking, a little bit more enlightened when it comes to uh, roles with, with uh, uh, wives and husbands and, you know, women in society and all that. So you see something like this, and it can seem very archaic. It's the patriarchy trying to keep you down, right? Um, I'm sure that's what Paul was thinking when he wrote it. Uh, but the reality is when you look in here, the, raw, the more raw deal, the more selfless deal is dealt to the man because the word here when it talks about husbands love your wives is not just a casual word that's being used here. The word that's being used here, which is something we'll talk about a little bit more towards the end, is agape. When we start talking about this unconditional, completely selfless love, and so what you end up seeing in here is that, yes, it does say wives submit to your husbands, but the, the piece that goes with that is the fact that saying husbands, you should love your wives and not loving your wives as somebody who gets anything potentially out of it at all. You should do everything for your wife. You should be completely on board with providing, for giving, for protecting, for doing all of those things. I mean, just think of the comparison here that Paul, Paul, who had a supernatural connection with Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul, who knows the, the nature of Christ, is sitting here and comparing the way that we are to love our wives as being similar to how Christ loves the church. And just think about how immeasurable the love is that Christ had for his church. I mean, just his entire life. I mean, the, all the examples you see of things that he did for people who, who didn't deserve it. People who may not have fully realized, you know, exactly what they had done, you know, with their sin or anything like that. You see the compassion that he had, the forgiveness that he had. You see all of these different things that Christ had for his church. And that is the type of love that he says that husbands, you are to have for your wives. And so you see, while it can be easy in our minds today as we read it in 21st century America to read something like this and say, wives, submit to your husbands, and then it to be almost more of kind of like a, a casual Hallmark version of, you know, husbands also make sure you love your wives. But in reality, the charge that's being levied here is so much bigger. And so when you compare that to what you see him talking about with it, you know, being good to avoid this like burning desire, this Eros love, you can see that a relationship is a lot more than just what we think of when you turn on TV, you know, when you watch a movie or something like that. It needs to be deeper. And this is one of the reasons why I, I think it is amazing when you see individuals who have these, you know, anniversaries that, that have, you know, are, are, you know, numbers that in the public educational system in North Carolina, they don't get to very often. Um, but, uh, you know, that's where I, I, I look at the, uh, what did you guys just celebrate? 53. God bless. Like, but you see, that's the thing is I look at that right there and I'm, I'm thinking there are probably some moments where it wasn't great, right? I don't answer, but 
I'm just saying, I'm going to assume. <laughs> um, but, you know, there were probably some rough moments. There were probably some disagreements and some things like that. And that sitting here and just sitting here having a Hollywood Hallmark version of love for your partner isn't frequently going to weather those storms. Uh, you know, sometimes life is awful. Sometimes mistakes are made. And what carries us through that is what we see Christ showing to the people around him. This idea of it doesn't matter whether you deserve the forgiveness. I'm going to give it to you because I love you. It doesn't matter whether you deserve this compassion or this, this sense of charity, if I can use that word. It doesn't matter if you deserve any of this. You did anything for it. I love you and I want you to have this. That's what we see in a good, healthy relationship. But it's important to keep in mind that it is different than this, this form of deep burning love that we end up seeing popularized on TV. So that's the first kind of love. So when we talk about eros, you know, where we get erotic and all that kind of stuff. So the second type of love that we see in here is a love that's pronounced storge. So storge is this familiar love. So not familiar as in I'm familiar with something, but like family, right? So this is where you sit here and say, I have my love for my family. One of the things that I thought was really, really neat, and I know that Meredith had, had brought up at one point in time with one of our previous pastors, was that um, you know he used to put on the bottom of every single email, I thought it was so good that I, I shamelessly ripped it off. Um, but at the end of every email, when he would sign his name, he would say, love you all, and he'd put his name. And I always thought that was so neat. I thought it was so cool because, I mean, you're looking at it and especially, uh, I don't know how much how familiar you guys are with like church administration and all that kind of stuff, but um, it's not always pleasant. And, um, you know, a lot of the emails as I've, you know, gotten to, you know, got a couple mentors and started learning more about what it's like being a pastor on a regular basis. Um, unfortunately, I haven't necessarily experienced this, but, you know, a lot of pastors get, uh, catch a lot of flack in their emails, you know, especially I think it's made people bold to voice their discomfort with things, you know, and displeasure with things. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting when I saw him, you know, putting love you all. And when I saw that, you know, every email, even ones that I would see or be car carbon copied on or something, uh, that, that weren't as pleasant, he'd still say love you all. And I always like that because I mean, what a great picture of what it means to have love in a family. Um, there, I, I remember when Facebook was first rolling out, and I, I know that both makes me very young and very old at the same time. Uh, but when Facebook was first rolling out, I remember they added like the relationship statuses. And you know, you could either say like in a relationship or single or married. And then they had one on there that was really interesting and it was, it's complicated. And I always thought it was interesting. Um, I don't know if it's still there because uh, I have not changed my relationship status uh, recently. Meredith. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the it's complicated, I think, perfectly describes the Storge love. Because the reality is that love in a family setting leads to complicated situations. Because we all have our own personalities. We do make mistakes and different people see things different ways, different perspectives. And this is exactly what you see in the story of the prodigal son. I think it's interesting because, you know, we focus so much on this idea of the prodigal son and the lesson coming out of it being this lesson of what's happening to the son. But I want you to think about the father and the son's brother for a second. I want you to think about them as we sit here and look at the story. So in Luke chapter 15, verses 22 through 32, we end up seeing this uh, toward, towards, the, towards the end of the story and the prodigal son comes back. But the father told his servant, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
he lost he was lost and is found so they begun to celebrate now his older son was in the field as he came near the house he heard music and dancing so he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant your brother is here he told him and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound then he the older son became angry and didn't want to go in so his father came out and pleaded with him but he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when my son, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, the father said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because your brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What you end up seeing in here is the complexity of living in this family dynamic, that nobody is is necessarily hateful towards one another, but there is a sense of injustice between the sons, right? And so... I just think about the different perspectives that the different people have, right? The father just wants his, he just wants his family to be restored. He just wants everybody back again, right? Uh, that's, that's a very understandable thing. The younger son just wants to be accepted. The older son just wants justice. Neither one of these agendas are inherently wrong. Everybody just wants to be loved. They want to be accepted. And so what you see pulling everybody in together is the sense of love, the storge. It's complicated. It's something that can lead to complicated situations. But frequently when we find ourselves in a family, what we have to do is exactly what we just kind of did right here at the end of the story. We have to understand and kind of recognize that different people have different things that they, that they want out of a situation, out of a conflict, out of something like that. Uh, different people you know, have ideas in their head of what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And it's easy if you don't have any other bond connecting you to look at it and say, well, you know what, we just disagree, and then sit here and part ways. But when you're in a family, there's something that pushes you to try to overcome those differences. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you always have the exact same perspective. You know, uh, consistency and compromise isn't necessarily a requirement all the time. Sometimes it's enough to simply recognize that I, I want my father to be happy. And you know what? I, I don't like what he's doing. I don't really approve of it, but I want him to be happy. And so I'm going to maintain this relationship. You know, sometimes that can apply to brothers. You know, I haven't always, slash don't now, have like the best relationship with all of my siblings. You know, but that's something that, you know, once again, I, I, I look at it, though, and when I hear of something good in their lives, you know, it's something that you, you can't help but, like, cheer for them. You know, when you hear something bad in their lives, you, you want to reach out and you want to help them out. It is not because we're going to be drinking buddies and BFFs. That is not the case. But it's there because there's something that overcomes the its complicatedness of this relationship. And the same thing exists as well for churches. It's easy when you get into like a church family to sit here and to look at the individual things that you know you may like or you may dislike and to sit here and, and, and throw your hands up and say, well, that's just outrageous and throw your hands up and walk away. And you can do that. I mean, if especially if you view the church as essentially like a YMCA or a community center and you can join this branch or you can join that branch and you just kind of move your membership card around, then yeah, you can totally do that. But if you view it as a family, then there is a level of trying to understand. This is something that I, I, 
always thought was, um, you know, it was a, a concern, but then it was, was kind of neat and a blessing to see as well, is that when we get the people on our elders team together, and, uh, you know, we have, like, very different backgrounds and perspectives on things. Um, but it's kind of neat, because I remember after one of the first meetings uh, for, for um, two people who weren't here, so I don't feel bad embarrassing them, is... Uh, you know, one of them, I remember, contacted me, uh, like, that day and said, you know, I feel like, I, f- I feel like I- I'm, I'm just holding everybody back because, you know, I just have a very traditional mindset and I don't want, I don't want to hold everybody back and I don't want to be that person and I just, I just don't know, I don't know if I'm doing a good job in this group and I kind of, you know, made the comment, said, well, look, you know, this is what's going to happen. We have different perspectives, especially with the church is eclectic like this, like, and that's going to happen, but that's good because that's how we, you know, get the diversity of thought in there. So like, no, keep, keep doing. Everybody, you know, likes that you bring up your own ideas. But what was funny is that this individual was basically bouncing off of another individual who was the polar opposite. It was very untraditional and was thinking of all these different things we could do. And, um, the very next day, I got a message from that individual saying, I really apologize because I feel like I'm just pushing the envelope too much and everything, and I'm just trying to push forward, and I just don't know if it's really blending well with everybody. And I kind of laughed because I just said, I literally had the mirror image conversation on the other end yesterday. But what you saw in this interaction is that, first of all, you could definitely tell like the weird type of PTSD we end up getting in families and that we've gotten in our society today where we've lost the ability to disagree with one, one another and still say, I love you. You know, where it feels weird to disagree and be able to walk away and say, we're still on the same page. You know, we still like each other. Instead of, you know, disagreeing and then, you know, crossing arms and hanging our heads down and saying like, oh, well, I just, you know, I have bad feelings now because we disagreed. But the other thing that was cool are these people who they had what they thought, but then they cared enough to say, I hope I didn't harm any of the other people in the room. You know, I disagreed with them, but I really care about what they feel and what they're thinking, and and I don't want to offend them. And I thought that was neat, because that was such a great display of people who have different perspectives, they have different views, they're, they're different sons in the story of the prodigal son, but yet they looked at the other side and said, I really care for that person and I don't want them to feel bad. That is a great picture, and it's a very small thing, but it's something that I think is important for us to remember, because families are complicated, and all families have people that are very easy to get along with. All families have people that are not as easy to get along with. Um, And as a result of that, it can be very easy to just simply cut those people out of your life and to say, well, fine, I'm just not going to have anything to do with them. But the reality is that this type of storage they love, if we really love our family, then we'll be able, we'll be willing to try to struggle through the it's complicatedness of our relationships to maintain some level of cohesion, to, to make certain that we're there for one another so that people may know, I might disagree with what you think on something, but... I'm not going to turn my back on you. So that's what we get when we get to Storge. So if you really think about it, if we can take a step back, then what you have is you have this Eros love that's really very much focused on self. So it's, a form, it's, it's love. It's love for another person, but, but it is very driven by what I can get out of the relationship. You know, whether that is validation, whether that's companionship, whether that's, you know, pleasure, whether it's whatever, 
these different things that you know I get out of a relationship are what we start looking at when we start looking at arrows. It's not exactly precise, but it's in the ballpark. Once we start looking at storge, this is when we start looking at loving a group. So it's really what it is. It's group love. So it's uh, and not not in an arrows way. It's a different sermon. Um, but th- it's, it's this idea that I love a group of people for the relationship that we share with one another as a part of the shared experience. But what about loving another individual that's not like, you know, your, your, your partner, your spouse, your boyfriend, girlfriend? This is where we get to philia. Very appropriate since we are going into the Super Bowl and one of the teams, I know it's Philadelphia Eagles, so I at least know that much about the Super Bowl. And I also think that's ironic because uh, philia, which is... Um, Greek for that sense of brotherly love uh, is where the city of Philadelphia gets its name from, a city that is entirely devoid of any form of love if you've ever visited it. It's an awful place. Um, But philia is this sense of brotherly love that we have. And I say brotherly love, but this is where modern enlightened people, it's gender neutral, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But it's love for another individual. So we look at Eros as driven by me and we look at uh, Storge is being driven by my association and what I can give and get from the group. Then we start looking at philia, which is my relationship I have with another individual. You know, there are certain people during my, my day job that, you know, I'll kind of describe as bros. And, and if you don't know what that's referring to, you kind of think of like your frat brother type people. Um, you know, and, and, you know, you'll see people like, I, today, it's really interesting, uh, even in like the workplace, if they're having like super casual conversation, occasionally you catch somebody like sharing a conversation or if they're having like a really rough time or whatever, someone, you know, one guy will go up to another guy and be like, love you, bro, or something like that, which is really weird to hear in like a workplace, but this is what they're talking about. I'm very, very confident they don't actually want to take that coworker out on a date. I'm very, very confident in that. I don't think it's because they're a part of this organization because, you know, day job working for the Navy, federal government, a lot of people hate the group that they work with because it's the government. But a lot of people do really like that person. And so you'll go out and you're willing to do something for that individual. Now, this is something that I wasn't going to sit here and go through and read the entire story because it's very long. But um, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, you end up seeing one of these stories of David and Jonathan. Probably one of the best examples that you see in this, at least as far as it being really explained and developed out. So you look at the relationship between David and Jonathan. And then, you know, specifically in 1 Samuel 20, what you really see is you see... Uh, kind of this classic thing that we think of when we think of King Saul and David kind of after Goliath, which is uh, King Saul feeling threatened. He got very, very neurotic about, you know, the fact that, you know, everybody's plotting against me and everything. So uh, he got jealous of the favor that everybody had in David, not just as, um, you know, being somebody who could usurp his throne because he had God's favor, but also because he was popular. He was a hero. And so, Then you had Saul saying, basically, I'm going to go take out David. And at that point in time, that's where Jonathan, actually being the son of King Saul, turns around and is actually confronting his father about this and trying to convince him and, you know, not to be hasty, not to take these actions, and then going to David and trying to uh, reassure David that, you know, he's, he's going to be safe and that, you know, he's going to help him out and all that. And the relationship that you end up seeing throughout this entire thing is an individual who has this deep sense of love for his friend. There's not really any other way you can put it. It's not just that, you know, he had some casual relationship. So it wasn't just kind of like a, you know, they had a work relationship, so they were kind of buddies at work. Or it wasn't, you know, something where they were in the same house, so they are just kind of friendly when they are in the same house. There was an actual bond there. 
So you can see once again that there is the sense, <coughs> there's a sense of selflessness in this relationship that Jonathan has for David. Now, this is important because in our relationships that we have today with other individuals, so often, especially as Christians, we can kind of neglect the fact that there is an individual nature to how we talk to other people. I know that one of the things that becomes popular in, especially in kind of evangelical Christianity, is that, you know, we need to go out to the masses. We need to go to the groups, you know. So you got like conferences and, and big crowds and stuff like that. And there is absolutely a time and a place for things like that. But sometimes those things are pursued at the expense of actually having a relationship with somebody. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, even though he did talk to crowds, the most significant stories we have of Christ, specifically of individuals changing their lives and being changed people or even following him, come from his individual interactions with them. So he formed in some way, shape, or form an individual relationship with these people. You can look at the woman at the well. You look at the woman at the well right there, and what he does is he sits there and he has this conversation with somebody where he doesn't just blaster with you know old scripture or anything like that what he does is he actually communicates throughout that conversation that he knows her that there is a sense of connection in between the two individuals and because there was that that relationship there suddenly it makes whatever Jesus is saying you know at, at least more compelling in the moment this is something that you can see you know individually in our own lives I mean how often uh, have you ever tried to talk to a large group of people about a subject and then you talk and you, you receive one kind of response, but then you talk to an individual one-on-one -on -one and all of a sudden people take that, that message a lot more seriously. You can see this anytime if you've ever had to like lead an organization or a group. You can absolutely see this. Something that's almost kind of like a joke when it comes to doing things within a church is that you sit here and you put an all call out there and say like, hey, I need some people to help out on Saturday because we're going to go move some stuff over in the old building, okay? We're not really, but that's an example. So if you sat there and said that, you put the all call out there, I might maybe get somebody to say, oh yeah, I'll go do it, especially if somebody's super motivated or something. Um, but if I went up to individuals and said, hey, Sean, I really need help. Can you come help me move this 500-pound speaker? Then, then it becomes a lot harder, right? And even though, uh, you know, you'd like to think it's, it's the man of the cloth coming up to somebody and asking them and then feeling bad for saying no, um, the, the reality is that having that individual interaction does matter, you know, humanizing what's going on. Uh, something that uh, we, people have seen and I've actually studied over the last couple of years of everything being distance education and distance work and all that kind of stuff is that so many people have done things over uh, things like Zoom and over the phone and all that, that a lot of people have studied that in the workplace, fundamental relationships are breaking down and as a result, people at an individual level may still be, uh, may still be uh, efficient, maybe, maybe not, you know, they may, may be able to do their jobs, but what they're missing is that connective tissue that relates them to everybody else. They're still a part of a group, they're still part of an organization, but they're missing that component. There's a, even in that environment, they're missing that little element of individual love that takes place between individuals who are trying to work on something together or who understand that one person, at least in some way, shape, or form, has some sort of interest in the well-being of another. That matters. And so in our individual relationships with other people, we have to make certain that we actually foster these things. We have to make certain that we don't sit here and just relinquish our responsibilities to uh, you know, witness and share the gospel with people 
by saying, like, well, it has to be big group things, or it has to be I need to reach as many people as possible. Sometimes reaching someone for the gospel looks a lot more like forming a relationship with somebody, being there for them, letting them know that you care about them legitimately, and then throughout their life experiences, being able to show them Christ in those moments. That is a far less, at least at an earthly level, glorious way of doing evangelism. It may seem like something that doesn't you know, look as good when you give like a testimony, but it's so much more powerful and it's so much more meaningful to, to actually do a form of evangelism where you show that it's not just about agendas and it's not just about you know, me proselytizing, but it's about the fact that I care for you and I want you to be able to have a relationship with the same God who has meant so much in my life. That is a far more compelling way of sharing the gospel with people. So that being said, we, we hit the point now where we've gone through Eros, which is really self-driven. We've gone through uh, Storge, which is driven really by kind of groupthink. And then we have uh, Philia, which is driven by the relationship or the connection that I want to have with this individual. So what are we left with? We're left with Agape. Agape is one that I know, once again, if you've done a degree of like Bible studies and stuff like that, you probably run across it. There's a lot of ministries called Agape and things like that. But it's one of those things that it's important not to trivialize because it is this type of love that we end up seeing in John 3.16. When we end up seeing, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes shall not perish but inherit eternal life. What we end up seeing there is not... God loving his creation the way somebody would like a hobby that they have. It's not, you know, God loving the world in a way where he's like, well, you know, we're kind of this ambiguous group of people. It's this uncompromising love. It's this love that goes beyond circumstances. And if you think about this, the only way it could have happened, the only way that everything that we see in the New Testament could have possibly have happened, for that matter, everything in the Old Testament could have happened, is if God had an uncompromising love that was about something that was bigger than the actions we took or the things that we did. Because if that's what it was based on, then there's very little doubt that God would have long since turned his back and then gone in a different direction or just wiped the slate entirely clean and said, we're just going to start over again. But no, instead, God had a love that was unmatched. It was uncompromised. And it was unaffected by any kind of acts of nature and man. When you relate this type of love to what we started out with, when we compare this to that Eros love, and we talked about husbands loving your wife, then you see that the command for husbands to love your wife is not something to be taken trivially. It's not something that should just be glossed over. It is by far the more impactful part, the, the higher calling in there saying, men, you need to have this type of love for your families that, 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 is, that is greater than anything else going on in your life. It needs to be bigger than your hobbies. It needs to be bigger than your interests. It needs to be bigger than whatever your professional whatever goals are. You need to love your family first, and everything else needs to come second because that is maybe even just a tiny fraction of the magnitude of the love that we see God having for his own creation. I think one of the coolest examples of these loves mixing together is in this, this interaction we see between Jesus and Peter. This is in John 21, verses 15 through 19. So I'm going I'm to read it for you, just kind of the way that our Bible says it first. 
When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, Jesus told him. A second time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, Jesus told him. He asked Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time. Do you love me, he said. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you, will, will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus told him, follow me. The reason why this story is so cool is because when you break apart the way this interaction takes place, it's that there's an interesting mixing of loves that takes place where Jesus asks Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds every single time, you know that I feel you. So Peter the whole time was mishearing, kind of misunderstanding this conversation, was sitting here taking this as Jesus just simply saying, do, do you love me? And Every single time, Peter's come back and saying, yes, Jesus, of course I love you as an individual, as a friend, as a brother. Of course I love you. And so you can understand his exasperation, maybe even his hurt, when Jesus keeps asking him over and over again, doesn't just take his word for it, do you love me? Because he keeps saying, yes, of course I love you, of course I love you. But that's not what Jesus was asking. He was saying, do you agape me? Do you have this all, this, this unmatched, uncompromising, all-encompassing love for me? Because you have to understand that following me doesn't just mean liking me. It means liking my sheep. What he says, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. You keep on seeing Jesus go back to this fact that love for him, this agape for him is going to mean something bigger. It's going to be a wider calling. It's going to call us to do things that are uncomfortable. In the case of Peter, that's going to lead to his death. It's going to lead us to do things that are inconvenient, to be discomforted from time to time. And so as a part of that, we have to be more than just casual fans of Jesus. We can't fall into this trap that is oh so common in a very casual read of Christianity of saying, I generally like the person of Jesus, but all the people suck. We can't do that because if you do that, then what you're really saying is that I love Jesus. You know, Jesus is a great guy. I think he's awesome. He did all these amazing things, but I don't love his body. And how can you love the body? How can you say that you love the head, but not like the body? How can you like the person, but not like everything that, you know, comprises a, 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 that, that, person's, that person's body, that person's being? And that is what the people are. That's what the church is. And so as a result of that, we have to be... We have to sit here and be cautious, and we also have to sit here and understand that when Jesus says, do you love me, he's not asking us, will you sit here and come to church? Will you sing some nice songs about me? Will you read some, some verses, or will you sit here and like listen to a preacher every now and then, and stuff like that? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you love me, then the way that that is going to manifest itself is you are going to love my people. You're going, and it, that, that love doesn't necessarily... It's not necessarily simple. It's not necessarily easy all the time. Sometimes it's complicated. Sometimes it means you form individual relationships with people. Regardless of what it means, 
it means it needs to be willing to overcome whatever random disagreement, whatever discomfort, whatever insecurity that we may have. Loving God means loving people. And as a result of that, we have to be willing to look at our own relationship with Jesus and say, are we acting as Peter and then looking at Jesus and saying, I like you, Jesus. That's what I love. I love you. I will sing your praises all the time. Or are we doing what Jesus called us to do? Are we loving unconditionally? Are we willing to show compassion unconditionally? Are we willing to forgive unconditionally? Are we willing to overlook disagreements and different ideologies unconditionally? Because that is what Jesus did when he was here on this earth. And that is what Jesus called us to do. Jesus calls us and says, do you love me? And if you do, you will go feed my sheep. So on Valentine's Day, it can seem a little odd at first or maybe even misplaced to sit here and take a a holiday that's basically become a, a gigantic stock boost for, uh, you know, women's chocolates and Hallmark and, and all that and, and sit here and tie this into some grander lesson about the universe. But the reality is that the subject of love is not a simple thing. It is complicated. And it can, it can be easy to misinterpret it when we just trivialize it down to just one little word. But Jesus was love. He is love. He's love in our life, and he calls us to have a love for a world around us that may not always like us, may not always be kind to us, and may not always do the right things, but regardless, he calls us to reach out to that world and to love them, to have compassion on them, to do whatever we can to let them know that no matter of hell or earth can possibly keep Christ's love away from them. We don't do that by being just casual fans of an idolized version of Jesus. We do that by actually going out, forming relationships with people and showing them that we care for them beyond whatever this world wants to assign to them, beyond whatever they've done, or beyond whatever they may think they are. So the command for us is clear. Go and feed God's sheep. Let's pray. Father God, during the celebration of during the celebration of Valentine's Day, help us to be able to take something away from it that maybe is more than what a lot of the world wants to take away from it. Help us to help us to be people that that truly feel this love that is that is greater than just kind of a movie or a, a neat little TV show script. Help us to have a love that is that is deep and that is true for the world around us. Help us to have a love for you that is willing to go out and to do the hard things. Help us to have a love for the afflicted, for the unwelcomed, for the rejected, for the hurting. Help us to have a love for all of those individuals, not because of anything that they've done to deserve it, not because of anything that they've done to earn it, but just because we love them. And in doing that, Lord, help us to be able to connect with you greater and help us to be able to to understand what it means when it says that they will know us by our love. I pray these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.